0: When I was about 11 years old, I entered the sport of cycling, and one of the foundational points of cycling is training, and it's probably not a shock to you that if you want to be successful in in athletics, you have to train. I mean, Pastor Joel in his sermon just last week talked about how we watch these movies and, you know, there's all this time given to the actual championship match or game and a very small amount of time given to the training, and um, this is true. We, we like to look to one or the other, but, but training is essential, and you have to have time in the saddle and put the miles in if you want to be successful, and, and I loved riding. I loved riding so much that spending time on the road was never a chore. Uh, one of the things that I really loved about cycling was climbing, that moment where the road became steep. And you needed to stand on your pedals and and pull up on the handlebars, working your way up the climb. The longer, the steeper, the better. Those moments where you have to serpentine your way up the climb just to keep your momentum going. But what happens when your legs burn and they become jelly and you're giving everything but you're moving so slow you can barely maintain your balance. You look up and you've got so much further to go, and there's just nothing left. You don't want to. You fight it as long as you can, but you stop. You climb off the bike, and you're left with the option of walking Up the hill, pushing the bike all the way up to the top. Pastor Joel had asked what I was planning on preaching on this week while he was away, and I shared with him that I was looking and thinking about Psalm 6. And I said, basically, struggles, trials, the normal Scott stuff. And I do love the Psalms. I particularly love the Psalm that we're in this morning. And as we work through the book of Matthew, this is a good balance. This is a good balance to the Gospels. Plus, it's important for us to look at examples on how to pray, examples on speaking to God in the midst of our pain, to look at laments and see the beauty in them, the beauty of being honest about how our hurts are affecting us and being raw and open in front of our Heavenly Father. As we navigate our lives, as we navigate life, our prayers are shaped by the temperature Of our lives. I mean, think about it. When everything is going the way it should be, let's be honest, prayer isn't too hard. I mean, we approach the throne of God with vague and and even overly general prayers. Comes out easy. It just rolls off our tongue. The wording is is very familiar to us, and it can be said with, with little thought or feeling. I mean, we take this approach more often than we think, even just our everyday. I'm sure at some point this morning you were asked how you were doing. Right? How are you? And your response is much like our prayers sometimes, general. It rolls off the tongue easy and quick. Oftentimes we respond without giving it any thought, right? How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. I mean, I'm busy, but I'm good. Can't complain. Now, I've been asked how I was this morning well before the first service, even after the first service, and I've still responded this way. Why are we so quick to just say, we're good, we're fine? Because we like to think about It's easy. But when climbing the hill and the mountain gets hard, when the suffering and the pain comes, our prayers look different. They become more specific, more pointed. We share from our our hearts and we allow the hurt, we allow the concern, we allow the fear to truly direct our words in, in honesty, but also clarity. And as I read through, as we read through Psalm 6 this morning, I want you to think about the directness of David's words. As I read, I want you to think about the words that David is using here. He's not just casting a wide net. This is a direct shot that is striking a target. So look at me uh, in your Bibles at Psalm 6. We'll read through these 10 verses. So Psalm 6 starting at verse 1. This is what David writes. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me, Because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all of you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy, the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and and suddenly be put to shame. See here in these these words that that David shares, that that David writes, we see an emotional hurt. We see a a spiritual hurt hurt. We see a physical hurt. He is suffering in multiple ways here, and he's using words, he's using terms to describe this, to paint a picture of this, and we can look at this and use this as an example in our own narrative of our own journey. I'm not sure which conference it was or who I was with. I don't remember who was speaking, but the the question was raised, how well are you preparing your congregation for suffering? I think about this often. This shapes a lot of the things that I that I think about. How are we preparing for suffering? I mean, we know this is part of our everyday. We know that in the world we live in, it is broken and it is fallen, and we're filled and surrounded by sin. We know this. And yet we often find it difficult to speak to others about our pain. And we even find it hard to speak so raw to God, the one who knows our hearts, the one who created us. But this right here, David's words in Psalm 6 can be helpful. They're helpful for us to navigate, to work our way through our own pain, our own suffering, our own trials, and where we find ourselves at even today and this morning. I mean, you can feel the struggle in these verses. I mean, it's here. It's written here that we can see his his pain and his anguish. Look at verses 1 through 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me. Lord, for my bones are in agony, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Heal me. My bones are in agony, anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Save me. I'm worn out. My bed, my couch, drenched in my tears from my weeping. But don't miss how he starts this. Do not rebuke me, do not discipline me in your wrath. David is very much aware that part of the problem in his life could very well be his own sin. I mean, read Psalm 51 and you see that David knew what personal sin looked like. Just take a moment and and think for a moment. Take a moment and look inward for a moment at our own lives. And I think you would agree that much of the sorrow that we face, much of the, the, the suffering that we face in our lives is from our own doing. Our wrong choices can bring us sorrow. They bring about suffering and pain. They, they, they can bring this pain because we don't like the consequences that are on the other side of our choices. In a house with many children, or even if it's a house of one child, the odds are pretty good that someone at some point is in trouble. Now, one of the standard punishments that we have in my home is called going Amish. You can feel free to use this in your own parental choices. But um, basically, when you go Amish in my house, that means you lose the privilege of electronics. <laughs> See where I'm going there? Um, my Amish neighbors do not know that this is a punishment in my house. <laughs> but I know for some of you, having, having electronics taken away would be more like a vacation. How sweet a vacation. But for a teenager, this carries some suffering. This is some hardship, no screen time. But think about it here. If you you speed down the highway and the police pull you over and they leave you with a huge traffic ticket, speeding will result in suffering, especially for your wallet. Right, and these are two basic examples, two silly examples, two uh, just very low shelf examples. But we can elaborate on them. We can build on them. We can talk about our relationships. We can talk about our jobs. We can talk about our homes. We create pain, suffering in our lives, because of the things we choose to do, the things we choose to pursue suffering from our consequences and feeling the pain of poor choices with sin is, is probably not a new statement for you. This is probably not something you're like, oh, I should write this in my margin of my Bible. I've never heard this before. I mean, we speak about the difficult consequences that come when we talk about sin. We, we do this all the time. I mean, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, right? The consequence of sin And if you've spent any time with children, whether you're teaching or a parent, I'm I'm positive at some point you've talked to them about the consequences of their choices. But even though these are well-known ideas or a thought that's not new to you, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't spend time pondering it or we shouldn't sit in it or we shouldn't embrace it or we shouldn't recognize that there's truth in it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 8 through 11, he speaks about sorrow. This is what Paul writes. Chapter 7, starting in verse 8, he says, "'Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because that you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance.'" For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Because Your sorrow led you to repentance. Your sorrow as God intended. See what godly sorrow has produced in you. Paul's not telling the church of Corinth that God wants them to be without sorrow. It isn't about it's all joy. Brothers and sisters, sorrow, pain, trials, hurt, these are all part of life. And in those moments of pain, In those moments of sorrow, when you are weeping, it's important to pause. It's important to pause and consider if you're the reason for it. If so, allow it to lead you to repentance. Allow it to expose your heart in a real way. I recognize for for some, you're going to take this as permission to just beat yourself up. To look at everything, to look at every piece of pain in your life, every moment of suffering or trials that you've experienced, and you're going to tell yourself it was your fault. I'm familiar with this thinking. But I'm pleading with you to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit you need to be honest in the searching of your own heart but remind yourself that David doesn't stop at just verse 6 verse 7 through 10 my eyes grow weak with sorrow they fail because of all my foes Away from me all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy, the Lord accepts my prayer, all my enemies will be overwhelmed with the shame and anguish, they will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. It's not just our sin that leads to suffering, it's also other people's sin. Living in life in a broken world is is hard enough, especially when I'm battling my own sin, causing my own grief and my own turmoil. But we know that suffering at the other hand, at the hands of others, is real too. I understand again that this is not a new thought. Hardship, pain, suffering is caused by other people, sin in their life affects yours. Again, I know this is not new. Broken, hurtful, sinful people hurt broken, sinful people. I mean, do I, do I even need to illustrate it? I mean, here's an incredibly ridiculous illustration. Toilet paper, gasoline, panic buying. You suffer because of their selfishness. Like, It is grander than that. It is more impactful than that. But it, it, it works its way all the way down to people filling up trash bags with gas. And it's easy to become angry and resentful when you've been sinned against. I, I know I'm guilty of this. I am really guilty of this. But I don't think I'm alone in that. It is easy for us to get angry at those that have sinned and that my life is now affected by it. But let me be the one that, to remind you that even in the midst of unfair suffering, pain caused at the hand of another, God is doing something in you and with you back to what Paul writes. What has sorrow produced in you? What are you allowing it to produce in you? Anger? Frustration? Contempt? Hate? Or are you allowing God to maybe work out in you mercy and forgiveness? God is working and shaping and doing something in you. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4-11 through Endure hardship and discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. For how much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. But God disciplines us for our good. Earlier, Jared read out of Romans, all things work together for the good of those who believe. That's probably not the good you think of. I know it's not the good I'm looking for. Do you realize that when you suffer at the hand of someone else's sin, it's an opportunity for God to grow you and to mature you? We call this sanctification. It is in those moments when we get off the bike in the midst of that steep hill and we feel every part of our pain that we become better and we get more equipped to bear it. And the next time we're climbing a hill, we get a little further up before we have to get off the bike. Now, Psalm 6 just isn't about sin and the suffering it brings us. We are able to see the example that that David shows here of, of how to ask God for help. And to do this, you have to start with the heart. Psalm 6 acknowledges the need of God's help. David's very clear in his need of God to help. I mean, can you see that? Save me. Pretty clear call for help. But it also acknowledges the need of forgiveness and the need of mercy from God. It starts with your heart. I mean, do you mourn over your sin? being sorry for your sin. I sinned against my wife yesterday. Um, She was sitting and eating, and she had one of my t-shirts on, and I said, you spilt something on my shirt. I said it that lovingly, too. Um, Now, (laughs) she did clarify that I need to give you a little backstory on that. First of all, um, I don't like it when other people wear my shirts, And two, my wife spills stuff on herself all the time. So, I'm like, you spilled something on my shirt. Now, in my defense, the piece of string that was on her shirt looked a lot like something spilled on it. But as I walked over, and I'm like, oh, it's just a string, she said, now take it back. And and I'm I'm like, no, it's fine. No, she's like, no, you have to take that back. I did not spill anything on myself. And I said, well, you probably will. And so... (laughs) But I said to her, Jess, I'm I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And she said, yes, I forgive you. That is not what what we're talking about here. This blatant, easy, oh, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? No, this is sorry about your sin to the point where it causes you to be broken, devastated, now, I can already hear it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not real emotional. I, I get it. You may not be a hugger. But lev- let me lovingly push back and challenge you on that. The pride we have and our desire to appear a certain way in front of others keeps us from being emotional. Not having a correct understanding of our sin keeps us from being emotional now you may not be filling your bed with tears your couch may not be drenched but allowing yourself to be open with genuine emotion that's what's needed the forgiveness that i asked from my wife was not heartfelt was not true I did not really ask for forgiveness. And I will probably say it again later on. We often ask for forgiveness that that very same way, even when there's damage done, when there's suffering caused. You cannot seek God to help without wanting Him to change you. I mean, I bring you back to Psalm 51, verse 10. Creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You cannot ask God to help if you're not willing to have yourself clean. I mean, if there's not heartfelt regret for your sin against God, why are you asking him to help you with it? I mean, if I'm not willing to change my diet and my lifestyle, why would I go to the doctor when that's exactly what he's going to recommend me do? Just acknowledge I don't want to change, so I'm not going to do it. Don't pretend. I mean, is there sin in your life that you're just unwilling to deal with? Sin that you know shouldn't be there, but you're just not willing to let it go. I mean, you're supposed to bring a heart that is open to God and that is that is ready, that is ready to be changed, that is ready to be whatever He wants you to be. And it's hard to do that when you're clinging tightly to sin or anger. Frustration, pride, you name the sin. But we also see here in these verses that God shows us mercy. And David's very open with God about his sin and his littleness. He says in, in Psalm 51:4, Against you you only have I sinned and I've done evil in your sight, so that you are proved right and when you speak and justified when you judge. David knows. So often we get frustrated that there isn't more justice in the world. I caught myself thinking this very thing earlier this week, the lack of justice that I see. But I'm I'm pretty sure I don't want to plead with God for justice for me. For the world, absolutely, but not, not justice for me. I know what I'm guilty of. What we need to appeal to God is his mercy. We need to be thanking him daily that he has not dealt with us according to our sins. I mean I can I can tell you there's a there's a whole lot more peace that that is found in appealing to God's mercy than trying to convince him that he owes me better than what I am getting. Right? The, the how dare you do that to me. It's not fair. Mercy. James chapter 2 verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, brothers and sisters, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if that is what we read in these pages of God's holy word, then why, why are we so quick to hold it back on those who have sinned against us? This brings us to God's glory. We see God's glory in this too. Now, it's not as clear as his mercy not as clear as David's heart being opened, but if you look at verse 5, among the dead no one proclaims your name, who praises you from the grave. David's basically saying here, Lord, if I'm killed, if I die, there'll be one less person on earth to bring you glory. In the midst of asking God for help, David knows that the reason he could ask is because he's seeking God's glory. Huh. There's perspective for you. God, even if even if I die, if I'm killed, if I if I if they if they win, well, I'm not here to, I'm not here to bring you glory then. That's not the way I think. I want to protect myself. I want to sit in my anger, my turmoil, my warm, fuzzy, all-about-me stuff. I'm not sure I'm thinking about God's glory. That, that it's all about His glory. I mean, is this your reason? Or do you find yourself sitting in this place? In James 4.3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Are we asking for God's glory? Lord, deliver me. Save me. And he's asking those because he wants to make sure God gets his glory. I'm saying, save me because it hurts. Save me because I don't want to deal with it. Save me because I messed up yet again. Our lives need to be lived to bring God glory. You're not your own. I mean, we like to think we're our own, but you're not your own. You were bought with a price, and that price is blood. The reason for all true prayer is ultimately to bring God glory. Our lives are ultimately to bring God glory. That's it. I mean, you can ask for help. You should ask for help. And even if you need some reassurance on that, like Psalm 6 is there. The prayer of David, a man who messed up, but a man after God's heart is asking God for help. Save me. So you read this and then you ask, does it make a difference? Does the crying out, does the weeping, does the praying for mercy, does the desire to give God glory, does it make a difference? Well, look at verses 8 through 10. Away from me all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy and accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overturned, overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. One of the ways you can tell if someone has truly changed from their former way of life is is how they change their attitude towards sin. In fact, this is the main change of life that anyone who accepts Jesus as their Savior, their whole attitude towards sin has changed. It, It should look different. Someone who has repented of sin may still stumble. We will stumble, some of us very hard, but that person will still hate the sins that cost his Savior's blood. It will make you want to say, away from me all who do evil. Not come closer. And what does that lead to? What does that desire to push away evil lead to? It leads to emotion. For the Lord has heard my weeping. I mean, have you ever looked into the eyes of someone who is deeply suffering? Their eyes are raw from crying. David knows. David knows that God understands his tears and his weeping. Psalm 56, 8, record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. I mean, too often we're taught to hide our tears. I mean, especially if you're a man, right? We don't cry. Tears, are, tears mean weakness, tears mean dependence. Why is it not okay to be dependent, to need, to feel? I mean, there should be moments where you are engaged in real, heartfelt, passionate, desperate, broken prayer. And brothers and sisters, it will and should involve tears. God's not turned off by that. It doesn't make him uncomfortable. He heard my weeping. He accepts my prayer. Genuine tears are a part of the picture that we see here. Don't lose that in all of this. Oh, but It ends with victory in verse 10. The enemies are overwhelmed with shame and they turn back suddenly. Now, we know that that, that is to come. For some of you, you are in the, the midst of Of the mess right now. And the idea of the enemy turning back seems so far away. Brothers and sisters, I know there are some of you this morning that are staring at a giant mountain to ride up. And your legs are burning and on fire, and you can't pedal anymore. And you're pushing that bike up the hill. Step after step. But I want to tell you that you're getting closer to the top. You're getting closer to the top with each step. And I know it's hard. I know it's awful. I know it's painful. but, But you're getting closer. And let me remind you of that moment when you make it to the top. You have the glorious ride down the hill where you feel the wind cool you, you begin to feel refreshed, and the past suffering that you just felt melts away. David writes, How long, Lord, how long? And we echo it with, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are... thankful for this morning. I thank you that we can come together and worship as a body, that we can open up our voices and sing to you praises, that we can listen to your word, uh, being read, that Father, I I pray that, that you would begin to, to shape, that you would be able to carve out in us the areas that need. Father, that, that we, oh, I recognize there are so many different needs. We are not the same individuals. There are some here, Father, that are, uh, rejoicing in, in celebration today. There are those here that are hurt and feel devastated. Father, would, would those that are finding themselves in joy, would they look to encourage honest, heartfelt, open encouragement to those that they wouldn't hide their joy? And Father, for those that find themselves this morning just devastated, heavy, weighted down, that they would be oh, more than just a fine. Father, allow us to care for one another in true, heartfelt, passionate ways. Allow us to to hold each other up. Allow us to celebrate each other. Father, we look at these words that David writes, we recognize the emotional pain, the spiritual pain, the physical pain that he found himself in, and it is familiar to us all. Father, some of us are on the climb of the mountain. Some of us are coasting down, but Father, we are all on the same path would we do so to bring you glory? Whether we're climbing or descending, would it be about bringing you glory in the things that we do and say? Father, we recognize that this is only possible because of your son. It is his his death on the cross that we find forgiveness of our sins. And we pray all these things this morning in his name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.